0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity. The podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalog, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they push the boundaries of animation shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. (laughs) A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I voted Pooh for president in 1972, I'm not your Disney versity lecturer. No, this week I'm a humble toy maker, just trying to live out his life without being kidnapped by a bat, forced to make a nefarious robot replacement for the Queen. We've all been there, right? Our very own detective genius on course to solve the greatest mysteries of animation history is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Hey, Sam, how's it going? It's all right, yeah, fine. (laughs) Very low-key energy. Yeah, it's all right. (laughs) Right now, my life is pretty
1: much still trying to solve the mystery of what marks to award to dissertations, Uh, so not quite as exciting as what Basil gets up to in this, but... It's close, you know? (laughs) It's close, yeah. That's what I tell myself. You can't
0: be missing Toymakers and nefarious bats every week, you know? But it's not just the two of us this week, we have a very special guest who I'm so excited is joining us on the show. Seeing as we're talking about an 80s movie centered on a character who could well be considered a wild and crazy guy, We're joined by a man who knows plenty about all of those things. He is this week going to be the Dawson to Sam's Basil. Please give a big Disney-versity welcome to the editor of Empire Magazine and the author of Wild and Crazy Guys, Nick Disemlian! Hey!
2: What a lovely intro. Thank you, Ben. That was wonderful. Thanks. I'm going to stun you guys with a uh, a fact to linking Wild and Crazy Guys and those 80s comedians to this yes, film. Yes, because this is your
0: book about the legendary 80s comedians who kind of came out of SNL and took over Hollywood and had tumultuous personal lives and all sorts of things going on. It's an amazing book. Go and check it out if you haven't picked up a copy yet. But yes... Link us from Wild and Crazy Guys to the world of Basil the Great Mouse Detective.
2: Well, it's not just that Fidget is basically the Belushi of Baker Street, but (laughs) did you guys know that Dan Aykroyd once played Watson in a Saturday Night Live sketch to uh, Michael Palin's Sherlock Holmes? Wow. I mean, Dan Dan Aykroyd could be Sherlock Holmes, because he's got that kind of eccentric, very intelligent energy to him. I would watch a Sherlock Holmes film with Dan Aykroyd in it.
1: And then many years later, we got the Will Ferrell Sherlock Holmes, another
0: SNL alum, and he and fans we of that. We don't talk about that attempt? film, Sam. We don't acknowledge it. We don't give it its dues.
1: <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. was on SNL as well, right?
0: For a little
2: bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's three.
2: I had to review that Holmes and Watson. What's it called? Holmes and Watson. It's not even a funny title. Yeah, I had to. I had to watch that on uh, Boxing Day, which I wasn't happy
0: about. I'm still not happy about it. (laughs) That is bleak. Yeah, well, is that one of the bleakest screenings you've ever been to? What, going out of your way in the middle of the holidays to go and see... Was that a one-star film? That feels like it was a one-star film. I think I gave it one. It's pretty terrible, yeah. The only
2: kind of redeeming feature about it is I saw it in a double bill with uh, Bumblebee, and both films had the song Unchained Melody in a in very different context, <laughs> the context in Homes of Watson is it's like a, a, an autopsy happening and Will Ferrell is like lasciviously rubbing, I, it's, it's an unpleasant scene and they're playing that song over the top. <laughs>
0: I feel like you just said the words lasciviously rubbing, and then we're like, I can't go any further. I can't, I don't want to go into this again. That's all I got. But I'm sorry for derailing your podcast immediately with that. <laughs> uh, this might be a new record for how quickly we've been derailed, but all of these get derailed eventually. It's it's inevitable at this point. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us and for dropping some SNL factage on us. We are still in the thickets of the Dark Age We've been talking all the way through this podcast, Nick, about how every person has their own, like, Disney era. We all have different films that we grew up... Seeing in the cinema or the ones that were out on VHS when they had the vault system and only certain films were out at different times to be able to buy on, on VHS. So I want to talk to you about your Disney history. Which Disney films did you grow up on? Which are the ones that were big in your childhood? Is there one that you remember being the first Disney film you ever watched? It's not really a
2: film, but I was really into Chip and Dale, Rescue Rangers, and right. I had had the cuddly toys. They were, you know, the one in the Hawaiian shirt and the one in the yeah. cool indie jacket. And I would was obsessed with those cuddly toys, and I loved them, and they were my friends. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I was into Robin Hood. Not the greatest Disney animation, but I remember really liking that, thinking the fox was very cool. The Rescuers Down Under... I guess, you know, Basil the Great Mouse Detective, so basically crime-solving mice. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like, crime rodents seems to be your niche within the Disney catalogue.
2: Yeah, mystery mice. Just sort of (laughs) furry, small furry creatures solving mysteries. I loved that. And uh, so those are the things that I remember being really into. And then obviously Aladdin and Lion King came out. I I was born in 1980, so I was kind of in my early teens when all that stuff came out, and it
0: kind of hit at just the right time. And so I love that stuff. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because there comes a certain point where you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm too old for Disney now. I'm too cool for Disney now. And you were a teenager when some of the really big stuff was coming out, all the things that I think Sam and I especially grew up on, like, as you say, Lion King and Aladdin. But did you see those when they came out? You weren't quite in that, like, oh, I'm too cool for Disney at this point. Yeah, did you see them?
2: Oh, totally saw them, yeah. And I would uh, hassle my parents. Like, I, I have relatives in America, so we would go to America a lot. And so I would go to Disneyland and go at every opportunity and go on the rides and and stuff. So, yeah, I remember seeing The Lion King when it came out and just having my mind blown by it. So I I was fully into that. No, so I was lucky. I was at just the right age when that stuff came out.
0: Oh, you mentioned Disneyland. I guess we've not had many of our guests uh, talk about going to Disneyland as kids. What were your memories of childhood trips to Disneyland?
2: Well, it was Disney World because I, I would go to the Florida one. I didn't go to Disneyland. I think I'm getting this right. It's Disneyland is the California one. Yeah, that's so right. So I didn't yeah. go to that one until I was an adult and I still ran around and had a great time when I finally <laughs> did. But no, it was Disney World down in Florida and I remember we we stayed in like a New Orleans themed hotel and it was just amazing. I loved it so much. Splash Mountain. I'm a huge Splash Mountain fan. I know it's kind of problematic these days. I think they've rebranded it even, but I love a log flume.
1: Yeah, Splash Mountain, formerly based on Song of the South, soon to be remade as the Princess and the Frog,
0: which makes a lot more yeah, sense. That's a big old glow up. <laughs> it just reminded me because on my shelves back here, this blue thing, these are my pictures from going to Disneyland Paris when I was seven. And some of the main characters I ended up meeting were Chip and Dale, the, the rescue rangers. Yes. But I think at the time I didn't I didn't really know who they were. I didn't watch that show. I don't think it was on when we were kids. So it was just like I met these, I don't know. Chipmunks and hats. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's the mind-blowing thing that goes around Twitter occasionally, where it has the photo of Chip and Dale next to Tom Selleck as Magnum PI and Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, and you go, "Holy shit!" Like they literally just ripped off like two other characters, two live-action characters, and they have the exact same costumes. But they are arguably better than Magnum PI and Indiana Jones. <laughs> they are cooler. And uh, I'd rather be in their gang.
1: Well, have you heard, we mentioned this on a previous episode, that there was a pitch which didn't get very far a few years ago for a Rescue Rangers reboot that would tie it into The Rescuers and The Great Mouse Detective, where The Rescuers and The Rescue Rangers would be different eras of the same organisation, which was founded by Basil and Olivia from
0: this movie. I want to see it. I want to see it immediately. Nick's eyes right? just like popped out of his head. The, the oh. look of genuine like joy <laughs> and surprise on Nick's face just then. I'm sad all the listeners can't see that right now.
2: I love the mad Disney crossovers. I love it when Blue from Jungle Book randomly turned up as a pilot in, um you know, the Chippendale TV <laughs> series, Tail Tailspin. Tailspin. I want much more of that kind of stuff. Just team them all up. It doesn't. There's a bit of that in Great Mouse Detective because... Uh, there is yeah. a little bit. Bill the Lizard, Bill is, the uh, lizard. In, is in Alice in Wonderland as well. So that raises many troubling questions.
0: Yeah, Disney versus the <laughs> legend himself, Bill the Lizard. We'll get back to him uh, later in the show. But So you told us about the Disney films that you kind of grew up on. But what are your favourite Disney films now? We, we watch a lot of the Disney films as they come out. We're very much still a part of that world to semi-quote Little Mermaid. Which ones hold a place? in your heart now, what Disney films speak to you today?
2: Well, you know well my feelings towards Encanto and <laughs> um, and, and Bruno uh, related songs. I absolutely love that film. I wasn't expecting to at all and I've seen it three times now and love it more every time I see it. I think they, they knock that out of the park. The other one I, I really love uh, that's kind of moderately recent is Moana. Again, it's just the songs, it's the vibe, it's the creativity, it's the
0: David Bowie-themed crab. It's just, (laughs) it's got a lot going for it. So those are the two that, like, pop into my head. Yeah, oh man, well, it's appropriate. You mentioned Moana, Ron Clements and John Musker, the directors there, who we're going to be talking about later in this episode. What's your history with Basil, the Great Master Detective? Because when I asked if you wanted to be on the show and, and which film you'd want to do, you were like Basil, and I was like, great. No, literally nobody yet has said Basil. <laughs> so do you remember when you saw this one for the first time? What, what did this one mean to you?
2: I saw it pretty young. I love Sherlock Holmes. Like I, I, I consume anything Sherlock Holmes. I don't like the Robert Downey Jr. movies, actually, but apart from those, pretty much anything Sherlock Holmes I will gobble up. And adding mice to Sherlock Holmes is so random and bizarre and awesome. Um, So I kind of just love the mystery aspect of it. To be honest though, my main memory of it is how terrified of fidget, the bat, I was. And there's actually a story kind of connected to it. Like when I was around the same age, I guess, as when I first saw Basil, Um, we were very young. We went to London Zoo as a family. And I came home and that night found a bat on my pillow. And what? Like an actual bat. An
0: actual bat? On, on your the pillow. pillow?
2: Yeah. And so I had to get my dad. I was freaking out and my dad ran in the room and threw the bat out the window. <laughs> like picked it up and threw it out the window. And uh, I checked with my mum yesterday. I was like, because I was talking to my brother Phil and I was like, do you remember this? He was like, no, not at all. And I checked with <laughs> my mum and she said, yes, there was a bat and it, it, it got dealt with. So I think in my mind, fidget the bat and the actual bat all kind of combined together in my, in my head. It's an interesting film because it's cute and funny, but it's got real menace to it as well. And revisiting it, I was like, yeah, the, the villains are still actually quite frightening, and as it should be in a Sherlock Holmes story, there should be a real menace to it. I love nice.
0: it. Well, I, I'm still caught up on the bat and the pillow. I love that you mentioned that you'd been to the zoo that day, as if it's all part of the swirl of like, did this bat come home from the zoo with me? Did somebody <laughs> bring it from the zoo? Is it a prank? Did it escape? But... Yeah, that's what a wild coincidence of things all happening.
1: I mean that's what Fidget would do, he would follow your horn,
2: that's his
0: modus operandi. Dressed as a
2: baby. And um, (laughs) I to this day am convinced that this
0: bat was from the zoo and
2: just came home in a bag or something.
0: Well, do you know who would solve that mystery? Basil the Great Mouse Detective! Yeah, well let's bring him in, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time, after conjuring demons and decomposing corpses from the Black Cauldron, we're blasting back to Victorian London to check in with the ultimate pipe-smoking, gun-toting, deerstalker-wearing detective. No, it's not Sherlock Holmes. It's 1986's The Great Mouse Detective. Slash Basil the Great Mouse Detective? We'll get there. Right then, we've already teased the fact that this is a riff on Sherlock Holmes, uh, but if you haven't seen The Great Mouse Detective, Sam, give people like a little bit of a plot synopsis. What is going on in this film?
1: Well, as per Dr. Dawson's opening narration, it was the year of the Queen's Jubilee, and the year Her Majesty's government came to the very brink of disaster. I'm just going to leave that there for a what little bit. What year is
0: this set? Uh, 2022, <laughs> is that...?
1: Yeah, I think that's the one. It's one of those years, one of the couple of years where it was the Queen's Jubilee and the government was on the brink of disaster. <laughs> so, the evil Professor Rattigan has kidnapped a toy maker to help him in his dastardly plot to overthrow the Queen. The mouse queen. Not the human <laughs> queen. There's, there's a mouse queen. We
0: should establish there is, as in, the rescue is like a human world and then a mouse world. Happening simultaneously. The toymaker's
1: daughter enlists Basil, the great mouse detective, to save her father and put a stop
0: to Ratigan's schemes. Okay, so we have an evil rat pretending to be a mouse. We have a robot replacement for the queen. We have a kidnapped toy maker and we have a mouse Sherlock Holmes in the middle of it all trying to solve the mystery, work out how all of this ties together. So had Disney ever attempted like a straight up Sherlock Holmes movie? Was that their way into this? How-, how did they chance upon the Basil novels? I
1: don't think they ever had. I mean, because we talked about when they, by the time they made the animal Robin Hoods, they'd already made the live action human Robin Hoods a few decades before that. I don't think that they ever did attempt a Sherlock Holmes movie. The closest connection I can find is that in the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, when the story of the Wind in the Willows is introduced by Basil Rathbone, an actor who was most famous for playing Sherlock Holmes and after whom Basil the Great Mouse Detective is named, he goes through a list of uh, characters who are less fabulous than Mr. Toad, and one of those is Sherlock Holmes. And several of those characters, like Oliver Twist, for example, would later also be adapted by Disney. So I think someone was watching the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad and thought, oh, we need a a Sherlock Holmes movie at some point. Of course, this was based on a novel or a series of novels by Eve Titus, beginning in the 1950s. But this was something that started development in the early 1980s at Disney. It had actually been pitched a few years before it went into production, but it was passed on because it was too similar to The Rescuers which as we've discussed it kind of is it's in the mystery mouse genre um, <laughs> but i would have seen that as a plus because the rescuers did really well let's do
0: something else with mystery mice yeah, right? The, mm. the rescuers was a huge hit as i was watching this i know we've kind of discussed this a little bit before in the rescuers episode but in the year that the king's man finally came out which was the uh sort of prequel to the kingsman movies which are obviously present day espionage spy thrillery things and then they did one uh, the king's man that's set 100 years ago it's the origin of the Kingsman Agency, watching Basil the Great Mouse Detective and the way that it frames that world of, of the human world and then the sort of subterranean mouse world that's happening at the same time and that it's, yeah, mice spies and mice detectives, it totally felt like this could be the King's Man of Disney, you know?
2: Especially as it kind of raises the question of are there mice armies with, you know, I keep wanting to say Watson, Dawson. <laughs> Dawson's come back from Afghanistan. Yeah. Why? What's he been doing? Are there mice battles and mice... Well, oh, there are mice guns. I mean, there's a lot of questions.
1: Yeah, he said he was in the Queen's Regiment, so he has been fighting in some kind of mouse war in Afghanistan. And, and yeah, so we've got Basil the Great Mouse Detective, Basil of Baker Street lives underneath Sherlock Holmes's house. Sherlock Holmes behaves in exactly the same way as he does. Do we all have mice? living under our houses doing exactly what we're doing are there mice
0: podcasting right now there is a mouse podcast (laughs) talking about a mouse animated film of a human detective (laughs) by the name of sherlock holmes sherlock the great man detective (laughs) what is happening there's a podcast called
2: miceversity that's been recorded by by tiny mouse ben and tiny mouse sam It's a bit like
0: us, isn't it? Like there's like the tethered, like each of us has got like a kind of version of us. Oh, yeah. It's it's kind of cool. Whatever the mouse Disney logo is, it is Mickey Man instead of Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Just like a human person. That means that there's a Disneyland with little mice wearing human costumes. (laughs) What?
1: Yeah, Mickey Man. He also directed hate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mouse Pacino. Mouse Pacino. I,
2: I really wanted Basil to team up with Sherlock Holmes. That could have been the sequel. They're kind of living in the same house. Mm. They could team up. It could be like Spider-Man No Way Home, but just with two Sherlock Holmeses teaming up. What if Sherlock Holmes isn't actually a good detective, but under his little
1: deastalker hat, he's got Basil the Grey Mouse detective pulling his hair and and moving them around and telling them what to do. He's being
0: ratatouied.
1: He's being ratatouied. That's why he always wears the hat.
2: I think you've blown this thing wide open. We have. How does the podcast possibly get better from here?
1: (laughs) Uh, well, how about some historical context? Yes, I think let's that bring would us do back
0: it. down to, to solid ground.
1: So this movie went into pre-production during the latter stages of The Black Cauldron's very troubled lifespan. Ron Clements and John Musker, who we've said later went on to direct Moana, also The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Princess and the Frog. This was their first movie as co-directors. And they were actually taken off the Black Cauldron due to creative differences, and this is what they were given to do with their now ample amounts of time. So, they'd been working on these storyboards for what was then, like the novels, called Basil of Baker Street, and that was going to be their next movie. Meanwhile, of course, as we've said, Ron Miller, the CEO of Disney, is ousted in a coup organised by his
0: cousin-in-law, Roy Disney Jr. And he's replaced by a robot created by a kidnapped toymaker to oversee the Disney operation. That's, that's what happened? I mean, that's your description
1: of Michael Eisner, not mine, but it's not completely inaccurate. Uh, so Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg are now the big-time former paramount executives who are running the show they don't know much about animation they've never really seen a storyboard like this before and yet roy disney has to take them to meet with Clements and musker to look at the storyboards of the great mouse detective or what was then basil of baker street and by all accounts they were very bored the whole time because it's like what this is this is pictures we're used to words what is this nonsense this isn't how you write movies so, Eisner and Katzenberg weren't thrilled with what they had, but Roy Disney talked them into greenlighting it. At this point, Roy Disney is being effectively installed as the head of the animation unit. That's what he told them he wanted to do after he masterminded the coup that installed them. He was like, give me animation. I know animation better than you. I've been here a long time. Animation's at the heart of this company and I want to make sure it keeps going. So because they had all of these animators and they did not have a movie for them to make, they just green-lighted The Great Mouse Detective because it's what they had at that time. But rather than two years and $24 million because of the disaster that it was already clear The Black Cauldron was going to become even before it was released because of how long it had taken to make and how expensive it had become, they gave them one year and $10 million, which is not a very long time to make an animated movie. So this was the movie that A, had to save the Disney animation department because these executives were not happy about continuing to make big animated movies. The Black Cauldron had been outgrossed by a reissue of 101 Dalmatians several times over. So it's like, we've got this enormous catalogue. Why do we need to keep making new animated movies when people just keep going to see the old ones? Which is kind of the model now. Why do we need to keep making new live-action movies when people will go and see live-action remakes of the old movies? It's always been part of the Disney approach to recycle their content like that. But at this point, it was looking like it might be a better business model to just do that. So they had to save the animation unit with this. They had to prove that it could make money with original films, and they had to do it on half the budget and a quarter of the time they would usually spend making these things. Is that
2: why it's so short, do you think? It's one hour, 14 minutes. It's so brisk, there's no... I don't know, I just wonder if there are scenes that have been cut.
1: I don't think there was any long scenes that were cut. I mean, that was the case with The Black Cauldron, which is also about 75 minutes long, and that did have quite a bit trimmed down for time. Time and absolute terror inflicted on children with melting (laughs) people
0: and all sorts of stuff.
1: Yeah... There's a couple of things that were cut from this movie, but we're only talking about one or two lines of dialogue, uh, which we might get to later.
0: But I don't think they
1: cut out huge amounts. You can see where you could have added new action set pieces into this and you know, extended bits of detective work, you can see how that might have happened, but I don't think there was anything that was like almost animated and then cut like there was with Black Cauldron.
0: So you mentioned there that Clements and Musker were working on this for a long time, but there are four directors listed here, and the other two are people who I don't think I've ever heard of in relation to any of the other stuff we've spoken about. So who are Dave Michener and Bernie Mattinson? How did they get involved in this? Well, Bernie Mattinson, I think we haven't counted before, because
1: he directed Mickey's Christmas Carol, which we did a special episode on around Christmas, and he was a long-time story artist at Disney. And although he's credited as director on this film, he actually stepped back to a producer role during production, because it looked like it was getting a bit too many kooks. David Michener, again, was a long-time story artist who was also an animator, but this was the first and last movie he directed for Disney. After this, he left for Hanna-Barbera, where he worked on The Jetsons movie, Tom and Jerry Kids and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, the animated series. Nick,
0: you're a big Bill and Ted head. Did you ever see the animated series? I've never seen the animated series. I really want to see it. It did have Alex Winter, George Carlin, and Keanu oh, Reeves in no it. Why is there no box set of this?
2: Come on. Yeah,
0: they should have reissued that with a new film last year. That would have been perfect.
2: There needs to be a new streaming
0: service that's just Bill and Ted stuff. Should be on there. <laughs> Three movies, one animated series, £10 a month, bargain. Okay, okay, so those are the people who directed this, but I wanted to talk about something we didn't really mention last week with the uh, the Black Cauldron and how spooky it was. Who is around at the studio at this point? Because we've spoke about Tim Burton being part of the studio a couple of films ago. Is he still around? Are we seeing his influence in some of the darker, creepier stuff? Because there are moments in this film as well that have some pretty intense, spooky stuff in them. Is that the influence of someone like Tim Burton? What other famous names are hanging around at the studio during Basil?
1: Well, we talked about how... You know, during especially The Fox and the Hound, there were famous names at the studio, people like Don Bluth, who was long gone, Tim Burton, who is by now long gone because Pee-wee's big adventure came out in 1985, the year before this movie. So he was already moved on to live action. And to be honest, even though especially Black Cauldron has a lot of what we might think of as Burton-esque elements, none of his work really made it into any of these films bar a few frames of animation in the fox and the hound he did a lot of concept art for black cauldron but it was basically just something that did to keep this guy busy he made his short vincent at disney during the black cauldron era which is a great little stop-motion short film which eventually kind of led into what would become the nightmare before christmas and frank and weenie the original live-action frank and weenie as well but he wasn't really doing that much that made it to the screen on the animated movies John Lasseter was also there during the Fox and the Hound, maybe the start of the Black Cauldron era, but he's now, or he's working with what would become Pixar at Industrial Light and Magic as well. Some little Pixar influence going on in this film, which we'll obviously get to. There is, yeah. But probably the most famous animator on this movie is a guy who I've mentioned before, who's Glenn Keane, who was the most talented character animator during this era and would become a big player in the Disney Renaissance movies, so he animated characters like Ariel and the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. And in this, he worked on Rattigan, which, you know, best animated performance in the movie. I think this might be the film that solidifies him as their biggest talent as an animated actor. I
2: was reading, I think Glen Keane wrote backstories about Rattigan's childhood, To kind of help him understand the character more I really want to read them, I just want to say that (laughs) That guy's got a lot
0: going on (laughs) Yeah, what could possibly help us Understand that character more Well, before we get stuck into the film itself I just have one last question We have been referring to this film by many names We call it Basil the Great Mouse Detective The official title card And the main US title is just The Great Mouse Detective You said it was developed under the name Basil of Baker Street What was happening with the name here? When did they decide to change it?
1: So, it was originally titled Basil of Baker Street, but Eisner insisted that it was changed to The Great Mouse Detective because he thought the name Basil sounded too
0: English. Too wow. English? Okay, well, but he's wow. British character... Based on an extremely famous other British character. (laughs) Maybe the kids just aren't into
1: Basil Rathbone anymore by the the mid-80s. Maybe that's the issue. But I think there was also a sense that the kids weren't into Sherlock Holmes anymore by the mid-80s because we'd just had young Sherlock Holmes, another film with the involvement of John Lasseter in the early Pixar guys because it has one of the first computer animated characters in it. In young Sherlock Holmes but that was a paramount movie which Eisner and Katzenberg were initially involved with before they went to Disney and that was seen as underperforming so I think there was this sense that Sherlock Holmes as a property isn't very cool and hip at this point in time so we want to divorce ourselves from that the actual original poster for great mouse detective Basil is just wearing like a suit and tie he's not wearing the deer stalker in the jacket Uh, So I can only imagine that it was called Basil the Great Mouse Detective in the UK because, well, you can really picture someone like Michael Eisner being like, oh, call it Basil in the UK, they'll love that. (laughs) (laughs) That'll really get the Brits coming to see it. But the most interesting thing about this title change was that the animators were really, really annoyed by it. And they thought it was a bit of an insult to take this more interesting original title basil of baker street and make it into something so literal and generic so they circulated a fake memo from peter snyder who was the vice president of animation at this point saying that along with the new title for basil of baker street it has been decided to rename the entire library of animated classics and then gave a big long list where they'd renamed every movie uh, with very literal titles, and I was wondering if you wanted to go through this in the form yes. of a quiz.
0: <laughs> Throw some out there, we'll see if we can guess what they're supposed to be.
1: Okay, so I've narrowed it down to some of the trickier ones, because obviously by design, a lot of these are very easy. So for example, we'll start with Seven Little Men Help a Girl. <laughs> no, way. Yeah, I got it. okay. Yeah. That's, that's a practice round. Um, we've got The Wonderful Elephant Who Could Really Fly. <laughs> it's got to be Dumbo. <laughs> okay, but we've also got... The Amazing Flying Children. Peter Pan? Peter Pan. Peter Pan, yeah. A boy, a bear, and a big black cat. Jungle Book. Correct. Yeah, I like this quiz. <laughs> <laughs> the Girl
0: Who Seemed to Die. Sleeping oh. Beauty? It is, yeah. These are such, like, weak disses. I love the idea of them, like, sending yeah. around this snarky internal memo, but come on, guys. <laughs> you got to come up with some better gags than this. <laughs> All right, okay, how about this? The Evil Born Head. <laughs> The evil Bonehead. Was that the Black Cauldron? Evil Is bonehead. that supposed to be the Horned
1: King? That's <laughs> <laughs> the Black Cauldron, yeah. It kind of makes it sound like a jackass movie. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's all I think of when I hear Bonehead. I'll say, okay, they're the only ones that I think would be even remotely tricky. I'll see if there's any other funny ones. Puppies Taken Away. <laughs> 101 Dalmatians.
2: Yeah. These are arguably yeah. better titles, just
1: saying. Robin Hood with Animals. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It should have been called that. <laughs> to my save a girl. The rescuers. Uh, yeah. A fox and a hound are friends. And then not friends is what they should have called it, giving people a goddamn
1: heads up. Possibly my favourite, though, is they've just left one of them as the Aristocats. They're like, what do we do with that?
2: <laughs> There's no improving perfection.
1: Yeah, so I know you say these were quite light disses,
2: but uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was absolutely furious about this. <laughs> I love that there was so much controversy about renaming a film about a mystery-solving mouse. They're all okay titles. Basil of Baker Street is not like amazing. That's very literal as well. <laughs> like yeah. it's just living on Baker Street.
1: Yeah, so you can kind of see the point there that like what maybe people didn't know what Baker Street was. Is he, Is this a mouse who's a baker? doesn't
0: sound very interesting who would want to go and see a movie about a rodent who kooks and as we found out several decades later i will see that movie i'll watch it many times and it will be named ratatouille the great mouse chef (laughs) Yes, what they would have called it remy the great mouse chef right shall we get on with discussing the great mouse detective aka basil the great mouse detective aka basil of baker street yes please So we've been talking about how Basil and Dawson, I'm gonna, like Nick, keep wanting to say Watson, Basil and Dawson, Basil and Dawson. These characters are very closely based on Sherlock Holmes and Watson, that it is very much that dynamic. And I had never seen this film before, right? This was my first time watching it. And the thing that I admired about the characterization of Basil, the great mouse detective himself, is that like Sherlock Holmes, He's not a very likable guy. He's a quite spiky, weird character who clearly has all this genius in him, but is not good with people, doesn't have those skills. And then the function of Dawson, a.k.a. Watson, ends up being... He's the people person. He's the guy who relates to the person who has the mystery that Basil slash Sherlock solves. Yeah, I was impressed with... We talk about the Disneyfication of things that Basil didn't get de-Sherlocked along the way in terms of his personality.
2: The interesting thing about this film is that you get mouse tobacco... Uh, there's a lot of smoking in this film, you get mouse alcohol, there's a lot of drinking in this film. Which raises the troubling question, is is Basil on mouse morphine and mouse cocaine? Because famously, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes in the books does take drugs, and it kind of helps him like with his mystery solving and with his various personal issues. So you've got to wonder, <laughs> so he's a, quite a chaotic presence. <laughs>
0: (laughs) yeah and and he has mouse guns as well for like a lot of the introduction of this character he's like just walking around his apartment holding a gun and like shooting it through pillows and yeah it's I feel like that's stuff that even in the 80s you could just about get away with and be like hey kids it's the mouse with a gun movie (laughs) and you definitely wouldn't get that now Uh, but yeah who knows maybe he was on all sorts of stuff maybe he was running through poppy fields and getting Mm. uh, hopped up on
2: all the good stuff I mean, what do you guys think about his crime-solving techniques? Do you think he's a good detective? Because rewatching it yesterday, there was one thing that I couldn't quite figure out. Like, he he tests the water and it's salt water, and that leads him to the river. Now, there isn't salt water in the river, or am I wrong about this?
0: Yeah, salt water. It would be fresh water in the river, and then salt water as it hits the sea. Is it because it was like... No, it wouldn't have been the point where the river meets the sea... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, the thing that struck me was that he doesn't do much detectiving through the course of the film. He's kind of just being kind of rude and kind of madcap throughout the film. For me, that moment where he works out where Ratigan and his crew are going to be at the sewer near the pub on the waterfront because of various bits of deduction, I was like, oh, this is the first time he's actually, like, solved something (laughs) in this film, and it was about, like, two-thirds of the way through.
1: He got the job done, though, didn't he? He sorted it out. I wonder if, maybe, if this was going to be slightly longer, 10-20 minutes longer, like, more conventional, modern animated film length, we could have had a sort of first act where he's introduced solving a different crime to show us his detective skills, because I think part of the other issue here is... He's clearly obsessed with Rattigan. He's engaged in solving a Rattigan-based mystery when we meet him. It's like, are all the crimes just Rattigan? That's not much of a detective job. If it's like, like oh, who kidnapped this person? Rattigan. Who stole this thing? Oh, it's Rattigan. <laughs> he, he literally commits every crime in, in Mouse and London. And then records
2: a song about each one and on, puts it on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's not hard. You just go down to your local indie record store, leaf through the latest Rattigan releases and listen <laughs> to his monologues. Well, yeah,
2: why is his vinyl player human sized like everything else is mouse sized apart from he's got like a just a gigantic sort of turntable that he runs around on yeah I, I kind of like the idea that Rattigan is, is got his finger in every crime in London that's kind of a cool idea but yeah it's, it is interesting there is not as much Basil in this film as I remembered like it, it really doesn't set the character up uh, just kind of introduce him very quickly and moves on and Rattigan gets much more of a big intro but I kind of like the, the pace of the film I like that it doesn't throw in lots and
0: lots of backstory and stuff yeah, I think with Basil, it's because he's sort of a package deal. Like, the, the way into the story is the little girl, is the girl whose dad is the toy maker who has been kidnapped. Uh, so she's our way into Basil as a story and as a character. At the same time, the narration is Dawson, so he is our other sort of point of view into, again, that world and that character. And a lot of the time we get with Basil is also with Dawson and with the girl. So... I feel like whereas with Ratigan, you get Rattigan scenes where he's kind of on his own or he's with Fidget or he's just singing his own songs or whatever. Whereas when we're with Basil, he's always as part of a team or he is a character who's kind of bouncing off other people, which I think he does really well. He's a, an interesting character like Sherlock to throw in to play off other people because he is quite a spiky, strange character. He's, he's interesting in opposition to other people. But you don't get much compared to maybe some other Disney films where the title character is at the heart of everything or gets a lot of time on their own, you don't really get that with Basil. He's part of a gang, you know?
1: I mean, I guess that's sort of inherent to the Sherlock Holmes format because in all of those stories and in most of the adaptations, Watson is our narrator and that's our way into the Basil character and he is kind of unknowable. Like, Sherlock Holmes isn't a character that we spend a lot of time with on his own, getting into his interior life in any kind of adaptation. We see him from other people's perspectives. So I guess that's what they were going for with Basil here. I think maybe the issue is more that Basil doesn't have much of an arc at all, he reaches his dear, his low point, when he finds out that he's being tricked by Mor- uh, Moriarty. He finds <laughs> out he's being tricked by Ratigan. <laughs> That's
2: gonna happen all the way through this podcast. They could have called him Mousyarty. <laughs> yeah, been...
0: Moriarty, Moriarty, something there. <laughs> he finds out he's being tricked
1: by Ratigan, and you know he's very crippled emotionally briefly because he thinks he's being outsmarted it's a hit to his ego but then it's the same kind of intelligence that he's been utilizing all the way through that gets him out of that trap so it's not like he needs to really evolve as a person in order to
0: solve the mystery so maybe he needed more of an arc Yeah, he he feels like he is less invested in the personal stakes of finding this toy maker and helping this little girl out than just besting Ratigan, which again feels true to who that character is supposed to be. Yeah, I like that a
1: lot. I like the fact that he's got a framed photograph of Ratigan, above his fireplace i think that's <laughs> awesome it's great to have a nemesis you know who you just look at a little photo of them every night before you go to bed and think oh i'm gonna get you nemesis and then ratigan's exactly the same they're obsessed with each other which i there's love
2: a lot going on in that relationship there's a lot to unpack and it's such a shame we didn't get more films to explore that because he's definitely not dead at the end ratigan <laughs> really <laughs> Well, I think if a person fell off the top of Big Ben, that probably would be
1: quite dead. For a mouse,
2: well, come on, Sherlock Holmes fell off a waterfall and he came back.
0: So I don't <laughs> no, know. I don't. I, I think rats have come back from worse. My question is, do either of you guys have a framed picture of a nemesis, either by your bed or prominently placed in your house? And if so, who is it? <laughs> well, Ben, that framed photograph
2: of you that I have—it's not. It's by no means my nemesis photo. Um,
0: no. Yeah. haha.
2: <laughs> No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> just to clarify. Not the editor of Total Film or anything? Yeah. No.
0: The other thing that I just wanted to mention with Basil that I think is really interesting is... Basil's actual introduction in the film when you're watching it, you've had the kind of start of the Dawson introduction, you've had the kind of pre-credit sequence, that's the other thing we have like a proper, again, pre-credit sequence in this film uh, it's sort of a cold open on uh, on the Flavishams, on the, the daughter and her dad being kidnapped by uh, Fidget, but that when we meet Basil, it's this scene and we're like, who is this kind of weird scary, crazy mouse, and there's lightning flashes and it's spooky and And it's Basil in disguise. He kind of takes a mask off, uh, he reveals himself, and it's like, oh, this is our hero. Welcome, kids.
1: (laughs) Yeah, comes up dressed as a a very nasty Chinese stereotype, which we didn't get a warning for in this movie. We usually Mm. do. We didn't get any warnings about outdated cultural depictions, which I think this one, even though it's very brief, might have merited. Um, But yeah, that's what Basil's about. He's about Asian caricatures. He's about perpetuating the myth of the
2: Yellow Peril. Yeah. Boo. There should have been a lot of warnings at the beginning of this film. I say that as someone who loves it, but there's a lot of uh, of, of troublesome and and disturbing things
0: in this film. Uh, not least the octopus creature, which we'll talk about later, I guess. Oh, we'll talk about that octopus creature because you say you say terrifying. I say lovable, easy to obsess over. We will get to that guy. Okay, I feel like we've kind of danced around Ratigan enough, and every Sherlock needs its Moriarty. Basil needs his Ratigan. And for me, the character that I came away from this film just thinking was the best thing in it definitely was Ratigan himself. Here is a villain who is flamboyant and over the top and genuinely really scary, but also. As you said nick will capture his nemesis and then play him a pre-recorded musical number all about him uh, to listen to as he dies there's just something so great and theatrical about ratigan as a character and in the way that he is drawn in the way that he has this physical heft that obviously one of the main gags in the film is that he he's desperate to be a mouse but he's a rat he can't accept the fact that he's a rat he's huge he's hulking he fills the frame And all the mice around him are just kind of... They they look and feel small in comparison to him.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, like I said. I mean, if you're a rat who is determined to be acknowledged as a mouse, how about changing your name from Rattigan to something else? It's (laughs) like you're literally calling yourself Rattigan. But yeah, I mean, it's a joy, isn't it, this character? Vincent Price is... Perfect. He's menacing at points like truly terrifying especially at the end when he just goes full sewer rat in that final action sequence But at other points, he's hilarious. He's got big numbers I just think he's one of my favorite Disney villains. He was even better than I remembered him being
1: He is the first in the wave of great Disney villains that would follow through into the Disney Renaissance, right? because I feel like we haven't had a great iconic villain since arguably Cruella in 101 Dalmatians I think you could make an argument for maybe Medusa in The Rescuers but Ratigan is very much the beginning of that lineage that would continue through with characters like Ursula and Gaston and Jafar I mean not least because he is a very flamboyant I would say arguably queer coded character and we talked about his relationship with Basil being part of that this like kind of male-on-male obsession that both of these characters have, but there's also a real campness to Ratigan's performance, or to Vincent Price's performance as Ratigan, which carries through two other Disney villains later on, like again, Jafar, Sheila Scar. I mean, are you guys Vincent Price guys? Are you big Vincent Price guys?
2: Who isn't a big Vincent Price guy? I probably haven't seen all of his films, but... Everything he's in, I've enjoyed him in. He's just there's something about his voice, which again can be menacing, but can be has just such a strange, like unique quality to it.
1: It's got like a sweetness and a jolliness and and a friendliness that comes through a lot in aspects of Rattigan's character. He's a guy who's going to be very
0: friendly to you, right up until the second he murders you with a cat. And mm, and that's the thing mm. as well, I think early on, because we have, I mean, he introduces himself in a song, <laughs> Rattigan, the world's greatest criminal mind, what a flex, we should all introduce ourselves with songs uh, about how we're the best at everything, I would love that, but when you have that moment there is a, a little mouse who has displeased him And he has that moment where he says you know what happens when someone upsets me and i love that when the cat comes in it's like a kaiju cat it's like so big compared to everything else it stomps in those big footsteps coming in and that mouse dies that mouse gets eaten and we see it happen and we see there are real stakes to crossing ratigan there are stakes for all the characters in this film and even later on in the film fidget gets eaten by the cat as well. He like claws his way out uh, and and then gets chomped again. But whenever that cat turns up because of that moment, you know there's real danger. And that is directly connected to Rattigan. He is the one in charge here. And as much as he's fun and he's funny and he sings songs and he's over the top, you know that when this guy means business, it's going to mean trouble.
1: Because he's a big guy as well, right? He's large, he's heavy, he's brutal, he's a physical threat as well as a mental one.
2: Yeah, when that mouse, the Queen Mouse, who I believe is called (laughs) Mouse-Toria...
1: Not named in the film, but she's allegedly (laughs) called Mouse-Toria. Allegedly
2: called Mouse-Toria, which I love. You have a real fear. You don't think the Queen is really going to get eaten, but... Um, I mean, there, there is wanton murder in this film, <laughs> and, um, along with all the rest of it. Yeah, he, he is genuinely menacing at points. He's fascinating. And I want to see prequels where we get to see the big Ben Caper and the Tower Bridge job. I would watch the hell out of them. <laughs>
1: I think we do need that. I mean, we are talking before about is there much to Ratigan's backstory? Is, is there any way we can make this character sympathetic? We've got to talk about the rat thing, right? I think that can be unpacked a lot, the idea that he's... A rat trying to pretend to be a mouse, and at the end we get this moment where, which is a moment that I love, when any villain in a movie who's had this kind of mask, this veneer of sophistication and affability, suddenly drops the mask and becomes vicious. And you get that a little bit with characters like uh, Captain Hook and Peter Pan in in other Disney movies, but it's a huge moment when you suddenly see Ratigan—he's no longer this like preening guy in a in a suit and a top hat; he's suddenly this vicious animal which is also something that was saw quite recently in The Fox and the Hound, when animals who have previously been anthropomorphized suddenly appear savage and are animated to look savage and animalistic. That's immediately frightening. But then there's also, I think there's questions around, there are reasons to be made of what being a rat means in this universe. We don't really see any other rats, but every time we hear about rats, they are insulted. Is this, like genuinely, is this like a racial prejudice here because rats and mice and bats they're human like they're anthropomorphized in this we see other animals like dogs and cats which aren't so seemingly all rats and all mice are on a similar like intellectual level in this movie but Ratigan is this character who is trying to shed whatever stereotypes are associated with rats and trying to blend into this upper crust human world which it sounds like i mean I look at the accoutrements that Ratigan is given, his top hat and his suit, in the golden age of animation, when a disturbingly large number of cartoons involved African-American stereotypes that would often dress these horrendously caricatured black characters in like suits and top hats in the affectations of the white upper class to almost parody, to satirise this supposed desire of black people to behave and, and look like white people, uh, which is a deeply racist thing to depict and it feels like that's kind of what's being put onto ratigan here i'm not saying that he was being designed as an analog to black characters or to any other marginalized race but I think that comes through. I think that's part of his journey here. It's not something that's explored, but it's it's a reading that's there. And maybe the fact that he is the villain, the fact that this is depicted as an unambiguously bad thing, a negative thing that he's trying to insert himself into mouse society, means that, from that perspective, this is quite a conservative film.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if that kind of applies to Fidget a bit as well, with the voice that Fidget has. It's very kind of, well, cartoonish. It's a cartoon book, but just a very strange timber to it. Reminded me a bit of Papa lazari from League of Gentlemen.
0: Both of those characters are othered in a way. Like you said, there are many ways you could read what exactly that othering is, but Rattigan, yeah, wanting to be a mouse and trying to fit into that society and stake his claim, he is just generally an othered figure. And I think you get the sense of Basil being this kind of old school upper crust Brit kind of guy. Meanwhile, you've got this top hat wearing rat and this kind of crazy bat creature who looks like a gremlin. Let's just get that out of the way. He looks like one of the gremlins trying to like claim something for themselves. There's there's definitely something going on in here that's probably inherent to a lot of those, again, just generally Victorian era storytelling tropes if you're comparing this to to Sherlock Holmes. But I, I think that gives a bit of a depth two rat again as we said as you said sam Basil doesn't have an arc in this film. Basil is the same character from the beginning to the end. He's he's pretty snooty, he's very smart, does the detectiveing. he gets the job done. And at the end of the film, he is exactly the same. Whereas Ratigan, I think, is the character that you kind of grasp onto, partly because he's really fun and he gets great songs and all of these things. But he is a character who's clearly, like, wrestling with something or going through something. And as you say, it is scary at the end of the film when they have that fight on Big Ben and he like busts out of his clothes when he goes full kind of animalistic he bursts out of his clothes physically that veneer is shredded and he also then tries to shred basil's clothes off him as well it's like they're trying to kind of return to this animalistic nature these these creatures who have dressed up in tiny clothes and decided to do and solve crimes
1: it's definitely a common trope in well fantasy fiction generally but we'll get it in a lot of animated disney movies as well this idea of marginalized characters from the borders of this world trying to insert themselves into the kind of hegemonic society probably the the biggest disney example is the lion king and we'll talk about that a bit more when we get to that movie but scar and the hyenas are characters who for different reasons are marginalized and ursula is that as well in the little mermaid characters who are different from the powerful who've been cast aside who occupy their own dark dingy areas of this world and who want to destabilize the status quo in order to give themselves some kind of voice some kind of power and they are always the villains in disney movies generally
2: at least in this era where does bill the lizard fit into this because uh, he's in a gang otherwise made up of uh, rodents and he's just a lizard in a flat cap <laughs> just trying to just trying to get along He's a
1: lizard in the rodent's world. So he was one of our favourite characters in Alice in Wonderland. We were huge fans of Bill the Lizard. And I did tease that he was going to be reappearing in The Great Mouse Detective, but Ben, you didn't really know how that was going to play out. What did you think of Bill's role in this?
0: I mean, he was in it very briefly. I was just pleased to see him. We were obsessed with the fact that in Alice in Wonderland, among all the other craziness that is going on in that film, there's just a lizard with a ladder. He has a job. He does his job. He's trying to make a living in this insane psychedelic world and this just confirmed to me that bill the lizard is great to watch in any environment stick him in woozy drugged up fantasy lands i'm obsessed with him Put him in Victorian London dealing with mice and and just doing his thing just in a very different place i will watch it i love him how does it fit
2: chronologically because where does this is this before Alice in Wonderland or is this after you know has he fallen in with a bad lot and lost his ladder or has he you know is it the other way around and he finds a ladder?
1: Yeah I have been thinking about this a lot because obviously if we try and map it onto actual history <laughs> this takes place several decades after Alice in Wonderland would have taken place okay. but you know Alice in Wonderland's a fantasy world the laws of time and space don't necessarily apply and we don't get that much context in the real world to set it in the, the period in which the book would have been written so I just like to think that at the end of his appearance in Alice in Wonderland, he kind of is blasted off into the distance, like Team Rocket flies off into the sky and we'll never see him again. <laughs> and I just like to think he flew out of Wonderland and landed in Victorian London, and
2: there were no chimneys left to sweep, so he had to take up a life of crime. I like to think that he's gone undercover. like this is a uh, Gangs of London style scenario where he's a he's a cop and he's playing the long game.
0: I have a theory, and that is we were talking about to what extent is Basil dabbling? in opiates, in true Sherlock Holmes style. What I'm picturing is Basil and Bill. Sadly, Bill has been caught up in this whole opiate situation. And when Bill gets high, he goes to Wonderland and he imagines himself Mm. with a ladder just doing odd jobs. The whole of Alice in Wonderland is basically Bill's (laughs) reverie that Alice happens to tumble into. That is my take.
2: It's lizard inception. I love it. (laughs) Alice in Wonderland is just like a criminal lizard's dream. This is is now canon.
0: Oh, I love it so much. What what idea could you implant there? I don't know, like a, a caterpillar smoking a dube? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I feel like we've had a good chat, a chat again about Ratigan, but we need to talk about one of the things that Ratigan best exemplifies in this movie, which is the songs, because I feel like Rattigan is kind of at the heart of a lot of the musical numbers here. Henry Mancini did the music? Sam, that's a big name, right?
1: Yeah, he's one of the most legendary composers of this era. He did The Pink Panther, he did Breakfast at Tiffany's, so he wrote um, Moon River for that movie. And yeah, he does the score and he writes Ratigan's songs in this film. They're kind of bangers, especially The World's Greatest Criminal Mind. That's, like, again, the first... That might be the first ever big Disney villain song. Because, like, the Queen in Snow White and Maleficent and Cruella Deville, they don't really sing. There are songs about Captain Hook, but he doesn't sing any of them himself, I don't think. So this might be the first big Disney villain song. Yeah, it's a big production number, and again, it gives you a great introduction to the Ratigan character. So this isn't a musical. There are only two other songs in this movie. There's the one that Ratigan records to play to Basil as he's about to die, and there's the one that's performed by a scantily clad (laughs) burlesque mouse in a bar, which we'll definitely have to get to. But I I think the fact that the other two songs are very clearly diegetic, have very clear motivations for existence, existing in this world means that, yeah, this isn't a musical fantasy world. Ratigan just likes to sing songs all the time, and if you're in his gang and you don't join
2: in with the songs, you're getting fed to the cats. <laughs> You'd need a fountain full of booze to just get
0: through a day being one of Ratigan's <laughs> minions, because I think it would be hard work. The Songs would be insufferable. Yeah, uh, his songs as well. The World's Greatest Criminal Mind feels like a musical number, like a number from a musical, but I love the fact that he has basically set up this musical number for himself, that he is staging his own musical numbers as part of his wider criminal enterprise. And that, as you say, Sam, instead of this being a song about a villain sung by one of the hero characters about that villain saying how evil they are, it's like, hey, I'm season control of this narrative. Yes, I'm the villain, but I'm the greatest criminal mind. I am the guy. Uh, I love how he just like takes charge of the movie through this song.
1: The world's greatest criminal mind is also the nickname of Vincent Price character egghead in the 1960s batman tv show
0: good knowledge possible
1: some inspiration there for henry mancini writing this and there were some deleted lyrics as well which were taken out for being a bit too dark if you want to hear those. Yeah, check them out. Yes, please. So they explain in more detail what the Tower Bridge job was, and it was basically Rattigan throwing innocent people off the Tower Bridge into the river and then shooting any of them who surfaced.
0: Whoa. That's way darker than I imagined. <laughs> that is straight up double murder. When you just said chucking people off the bridge, I was like, well, that's already murder. And then you said shooting them if they survived. Oh, my what? goodness. Wow. It's not really a job either, is it? I'm not sure
2: what the profit element of that is. It's fairly bleak. That's, I don't want to know any more about the Big Ben heist now. Like, well, <laughs> he was doing that there.
1: Oh, yeah, so he, he sings, um, I've been working on my Vincent Price impression all week, and Come I don't
0: think him. it's quite there. No, you can do. we believe in you. I'm Vincent Price
1: Vincent Price Professor Ratigan. Okay, there we are Ooh. Picking them off One by one Picking them off Just for fun <laughs> Such privilege My view from the bridge As all of them Bobbed and sank oh. But now This matchless plotter Has been hatching Some much more Unnatural prank <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, so I kind of lost it At the end there That uh, was incredible That was incredible And also will haunt My waking dreams For the rest of my life <laughs> It was like Rattigan was in the room <laughs> Not quite a prank. Yeah, murder prank. That is psychopathic and, and, and disturbing.
0: Not quite as disturbing as the song done by the mouse in the bar later, but um, it's mm. close. Yeah, before we get onto that song, uh, the other thing that I really liked about The World's Greatest Criminal Mind was that at that point, the film like visually sort of becomes a giallo movie. It's big Suspiria vibes. It's like the whole frame turns blue and then turns red. And I was like, wow, this is like Disney meets Argento. What more do you want? But yeah, so... Uh, Let's talk about the mouse burlesque song. That was a thing that happened. It was. It was. I mean,
2: Sam, I don't know. I I came across some information last night that maybe you can verify or or otherwise. But I Mm -hmm. read that this mouse singer could have been voiced by either Madonna or Lisa Minnelli. (laughs) Is is there truth to this? Yeah. So... One of Michael Eisner's first
1: notes on this movie when he was in that initial storyboard session with Musker and Clements was that he wanted a pop star for this scene. And his original plan was for a character to sort of enter into the bar, a bit like a western, like march in and trying to assert themselves by picking a fight with Basil. And that character was going to be voiced by Michael Jackson. Oh, that's incredible. Because apparently Eisner had just seen the video for Smooth Criminal. (laughs) <laughs> in which that is exactly what happens. <laughs> Musker and Clements just stood in awed silence and were like, we, "We we can't do that." And then Eisner was like, "You know what? You're right. <laughs> That's you're, He said, "Your job is is to." tell me when i've come up with a terrible idea basically but then later in production he was like you know what i think we still need someone more contemporary we'll get madonna in there and that was passed on as well which seems ridiculous but it is actually not a million miles away from her performance in dick tracy which which is a disney
2: movie as well breathless mahoney yeah Yeah,
1: it's good i think it's stephen sondheim songs i think that
0: works i can't believe we could have seen a moonwalking mouse that must be really hard to animate moonwalking (laughs) looks so unnatural anyway to make that look right in animation must be a hell of a job
1: well there is a moonwalking uh, i think rabbit in michael jackson's movie moonwalker which is done in claymation by will vinton the great stop motion animator so check that one out how does it look is it horrifying i mean yeah but that's (laughs) will vinton's style of claymation is, is horrifying in and of itself so check that one out i hadn't heard liza minnelli but maybe that's just the cabaret connection people Maybe. are making that leap yeah so instead of any of those contemporary pop singers and by the way eisner and katzenberg clearly had an obsession with getting contemporary pop singers into disney movies and we'll see that come to fruition to fabulous effect in oliver and company next time instead they got a sort of adult contemporary singer-songwriter called melissa manchester to write and perform this song so she'd had a couple of like adult contemporary hits, but she wasn't a mainstream pop superstar. I looked at her Spotify page to see if I recognised any of her songs, and her most recent single is the COVID nineteen
0: blues. Oh, okay. That sounds no, but terrible. I know what you're
1: thinking. I know what you're thinking. It's not great, but it's pro restrictions. Okay. It's not like an anti-vax,
2: anti-mask. I was gonna say, song. did you
0: find this on Spotify, Sam? <laughs> How much did they pay for this?
2: I was concerned for a while that the mouth singer was anti vaxxer but um, I mean, yeah, this seems this this scene gets talked a lot. I'd say this is probably the scene that gets talked about the most, just based on what I've seen on social media when this film comes up. People have a lot of strong views on on "Let Me Be Good to You," and just saying that like it was part of their maybe um formative sort of development <laughs> in terms <laughs> of like finding it quite confusing to see. As uh, a i I have no memory of seeing it, uh, so I don't know. But, Maybe I just couldn't process it.
1: I'm surprised there's not that much talk about Basil, considering how much people fancy Cumberbatch or Sherlock Holmes. I think this isn't a million miles away from that.
0: I just think it's interesting that like this film is quite overtly sexual, and the fact that we're in the 80s, this era of Disney where it's like guns, sex, villains who like actually kill people, it's a it's definitely a harder-edged Disney that I feel like pretty swiftly we're going to be moving away from. This feels like a little pocket of time where all of this stuff was, was kind of acceptable in a Disney movie in a way that I feel like probably even in the 90s that goes away pretty quick, I think. It's pretty wild. I
2: mean, I was making notes last night and I just wrote down the words horny mice and then I underlined it a few minutes later because I think it was (laughs) the horniness was was getting out of control. But yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the octopus thing that we talked about earlier, I think you're you're maybe warmer to it than I am, but I was just like, what is this Lovecraftian sort of abomination (laughs) that's on my screen? And throw knives at it quickly. What is happening? It
0: was like they were really going out of their way to be disturbing almost with that scene. I mean, let's talk about the octopus because, Sam, when I was watching this, when I saw that octopus, I was like, I think we might have. A disney University legend on our eight hands and I don't know if you felt the same so Nick this is our we grasp onto the the minor characters from these films and get pretty obsessed with them like Bill the Lizard little toot from one of the package era films uh who else have we got Uncle Waldo from the Aristocats these minor minor characters that nobody remembers that swoop into these films steal our hearts and run away with them and a juggling octopus who's just, like, happy to do his show. I was like, I think we might have a Disney-versity legend here. Sam, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I love the juggling octopus. I think people are now well-known. I'm, I'm becoming well-known for my love for amphibians in little outfits. Uh, I'm also a big <laughs> fan of cephalopods in little outfits. I think this rules. Everyone boos the octopus. It's kind of taken as red that the do It's because they're waiting for the sexy mouse. So the audience are like, boo, get off the stage, octopus why i mean to me a juggling octopus is remarkable it's a good chance it's something if i saw a juggling octopus i would not be booing so that the octopus goes off and then we get this like big round frog who's riding on a (laughs) lizard on a unicycle also booed also completely remarkable what do these people
0: want well we find out (laughs) it's, it's a mouse in lingerie all the other shows look amazing I feel like doesn't the juggling octopus also tap dance at one point doesn't he tap dance (laughs) for a bit there's many, many. Legs. I could
1: not imagine being so horny that I would boo a juggling octopus and a unicycling <laughs> lizard frog combo off the stage just to get to a sexy mouse. Yeah. I would definitely give those the time of day,
2: no matter how I was feeling. Was this whole scene kind of was there any controversy over it at the time? According to IMDb trivia, that there was some like battling over the scene and whether it should be cut. And and apparently the animators argued that it was a mouse, not a human, so it was okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the logic, the logic checks out. I think. <laughs> (laughs) it's less the fact that so there's one
1: thing for it to be a sexy mouse in like revealing burlesque style outfits if it was just that i don't think it would be as troubling as the fact that all of the mice in the bar very clearly react to it it's like this is a performance for the sexual titillation of these mice that's what pushes it to the next level
2: Mm,
0: yeah great tune though shout out melissa manchester <laughs> <laughs> i like that as fidget is uh then after that song when he's kind of going through the sewers he's singing it to himself just a, it's just a catchy number sam i just gotta get back to this is the juggling octopus a disneyversity legend because the other candidate i feel would maybe be fidget who is a big part of this film but he's also kind of spooky maybe fidget is a tdlf which you'll need to listen to the last pod for context for that. We'll bench Fidget for
1: now. Okay. Obviously, we'll come to Fidget. I think there is precedent for there being more than one Disney Disneyversity legend in each film. Yeah, the octopus is in there. I think is the octopus is we
0: make it official? Do we do the... Yeah, do the fanfare. There we go. Official Disneyversity legend. The juggling slash tap-dancing octopus from Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Welcome. Oh. Welcome to the club. Well, I'm, I'm, I've come around to him. I've walked to him. <laughs>
2: I no longer want to throw knives at him.
0: (laughs) As much as the let me be good to you sequence stands out when you're watching it because you're like, what the hell am I seeing right now? I do think my favorite sequence with a song is Basil and Dawson being caught up in Ratican's trap. And as we said, the fact that he's written this special song for the pair to listen to while they're about to die, he's also built this huge Rube Goldberg machine. It was like the game Mousetrap. It was like the board game Mousetrap of the thing is going to hit the thing, and then that's going to hit the what's it, and then they're going to get splattered in the trap. And all the time they're, they're sitting they're listening to this song that Ratigan has specially written, recorded, and played for them. That is such a great move. I love it.
2: I want to know what the B side is of that of that record. <laughs> like flip it over see what
0: it is. Is it a remix? Rattigan's less commercial. Is it a Rattigan cover of Let Me Be Good To You? Yeah. I mean, there's no way he only pressed one side of that record. We know what Rattigan's deal is. He's got songs up his sleeve. He wouldn't just record one. He'd press both sides of that record.
1: I can only imagine he's kidnapped, like, one of the few people in Victorian London who knows how to press a record (laughs) and force them to, you know, produce this session.
0: Yeah, would it have been, like, wax cylinders back in those days? Is this an anachronism? Uh, Sam, have we we found a plot hole in Basil the Great Mouse (laughs) (laughs) Detective? Okay, hang on. Googling it, keep talking.
2: (laughs) Well, maybe the mice are more technologically advanced than the humans. They might be, like, good 20, 30 years ahead of them. They're capable of building a robot that serves tea, which is something that humans certainly haven't been able to master at this point. That's very true, yeah. So it does raise the question of whether these mice are going to take over the human world at some point. And, again, (laughs) there should have been many sequels to explore that. The phonograph was trademarked in 1887,
1: so it is quite conceivable that he could have been playing it. Oh, but, oh no, but actually they
0: used wax cylinders Look, I don't know, I should have looked this up beforehand And <laughs> I only know Maybe someone's getting fired for that blunder, who knows Found the one plot hole uh, But yeah, well, what about the song? What did you guys make of the song itself? I thought it was a very jaunty ditty uh, It was, uh, in my notes it says Absolute bop Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very solid uh, sort of death tune Countdown to death
2: um, I think he's deliberately made it quite long So that they, <laughs> they have time to Think about what's going to happen yeah. um, And escape (laughs) so
0: that was he should have made it a lot shorter maybe that's a bit of hubris on his part as well that he's like so caught up in his own song the song is so long that he actually gave them time to escape whereas if he'd have reined it in he just can't do it he's he's full of music and he needs to let it out
1: it's like in in the incredibles where syndromes like you caught me monologuing it's like that but kind of absentia monologuing, remote monologuing.
2: I mean, it's one of those things where he just needs to leave one of his minions there, leave Builder Lizard there. He doesn't leave someone there, does he? Or does he? No, I don't think he does. He goes off in his little dirigible with uh, fidgets.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Riding it like a bicycle. I mean, while we're talking about Fidget, let's talk about Fidget because I love that guy. Again, he is a likable villain. He does some pretty heinous stuff at the start of this film. He is the one who does the kidnapping at the start. He looks scary. He looks like a gremlin. And I'm not talking about a Mogwai, I'm talking about full on sitting in the cinema watching Snow White chucking popcorn everywhere gremlin. But at the same time, there's something so likable about that guy. We really get a sense of his dynamic with Ratigan, that he's just a, a weirdo bat who's trying his best, who's kinda of scared of his boss and trying to do what's best. He was a fun character to spend time with, I thought.
2: I'm gonna attempt an impression of Fidget. Sorry, yes, this is gonna go it. wrong. I was practicing it last night. I
0: got the girl, I got the tools,
2: I got the uniforms. <laughs> Yes, uh, I just yeah. needed to do that. I just, I just needed to uh, do that. Sorry, but um, he, yeah, he is a lovable but yet monstrous abomination of a of a, of a character. Uh, you're absolutely right about the Gremlins thing. He's got such big Gremlins energy, and the scene in the toy store where the where he's kind of popping out, it's so similar to the scene at the end of Gremlins, where you know they're in the toy store and they pan across some Bugs Bunnies or something, and you see uh, a Gremlin there. Yeah, I just wonder, it must have been an influence. This was two years after Gremlins.
1: Well, I was wondering if the scene where he's dressed up as Olivia and hiding in the bottle, and uh, I think it's Dawson, comes up from behind thinking it's Olivia, and he turns around and he's like, surprise, fidget! That was terrible, hang on. (laughs) <laughs> i can't do it it was good it was good it was good i was wondering if that was influenced by the ending of nicholas rogues don't look now because, you know, the As, i don't know if it's likely that the animators would have seen that but there's a lot of similarities there mm. but this guy perpetrates at least three proper jump scares in this movie there's that one there's the one the toy store, and there's the one right at the start he's got such a big hideous face and hideous voice the voice is actually really interesting cuz he's played by a guy called Candy Candido who we have encountered before. Well his most famous role regrettably is the chief in Peter Pan, so we'll move on from that swiftly, but he's also Maleficent's henchman in Sleeping Beauty and he's the alligator with the little arrow in Robin Hood's the captain oh, of the guards yes. who's like <laughs> you know you know that guy. Yeah, we love that so guy. if we do let's Finger into the club, that means that Candy Candido has two Disney Disneyversity legends under his belt, which may be a first. Yeah, I feel
0: like we never officially decided who the Disney Disneyversity legends were from Robin Hood, because we had four candidates there, and that we're going to have to come back lot. to that when we do the study group episode at the end of the Dark Age. So Candy
1: Candido was famous for his incredibly, like, inhumanly deep voice, so they've sped it up and, and like up the pitch for this and that's why you get that really unsettling effect on
2: fidget's voice it, it left a sizable dent in my psyche i will say that this character i will never i will never shake off i mean genuinely frightening but entertaining at the same time and you're right there's that pathos and when it when fidget is dressed as a baby I don't know what, what emotions I'm feeling.
0: <laughs> because, as scary as he is, there's also that thing where, when they're doing all the stuff in the toy shop, he's got a little to do list. He's ticking things off his to do list. He's like a bit I of got an idiot. The uniforms. <laughs> it's really cute, isn't it? <laughs> cute and <I> got... <laughs> kind of dumb, but kind of scary at the same time. It's a weird mix. Tools
2: check. I got tools. I got the <laughs> tools. I got the <laughs> tools. <laughs> he loves that little to do
0: list, and it's really sad yeah, when he loses, he loses it. it. It's like his favourite oh. thing. And and the panic when he realises what he's done. Where he's like, oh, I don't have the list. No, oh I don't got the list. I
1: got the list. <laughs> Multiple duel and Fidget impressions are not what our audience's ears need. At this sorry, time. sorry, listeners.
2: <laughs> do you guys think that Fidget survived this this film? Put a pin in that. Okay. Put a pin in Ooh, that yeah. as we're coming back okay. to it, my friend. All right, all right, okay.
0: The other thing, just while we're on the toy shop, I want to just throw out, did we all notice the Dumbo toy? There is a Dumbo toy in the toy shop spewing out bubbles. There's a little Dumbo. There's also a clockwork
1: brass band composed entirely of firemen, which I think might be a reference to the uh, Disney animation house band from the 1950s, the Firehouse 5 plus 2, which included many of the Nine hold Men.
0: Wow, that is a deep cut.
2: I was nodding, but I had no idea what was (laughs) happening. But that's great trivia.
1: Yeah, fidget. So if we're trying to put fidget into one of the many categories that we now have on this show for these little guys, I think he is a truly disgusting little freak.
0: Do you know what? He might be all three. He might be a bit of a Disney-versity legend, a bit of a truly disgusting little freak, and also a bit of a Disney-versity abomination all at the same time. We'll have to see if any other character reaches all three of those categories at the same time
1: so gurgi is a TLF, and he is a disneyversity abomination i'm sorry for just alienating nick with all of this jargon no, all of it. this terminology gurgi is both of those things mm-hmm. but also the issue with gurgi is that he is supposed to be likable right he's supposed to be a good guy who we don't want to see perish at the end of the film whereas fidget is very likable but he is also a villain and he's meant to be horrible and he's meant to be scary and I think he threads that really well. He, he brings those things together really well. It's a tight
0: walk and I think the manager. Maybe giving Rattigan a run for his money for the best thing in the film, who knows? So I think he is a Disneyversity legend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay well I'm gonna give like a half-hearted as a maybe for Fidget in the Disneyversity Legends canon. We'll come back to it Sam, I'll see, I'll stew on it for a bit. Anyway, we need to talk about the ending of this film because it is absolutely nuts. As much as there's a lot of weird stuff going on in terms of, hey, it's mice doing Sherlock Holmes and oh God, there's mouse burlesque and now we have a rat trying to be a mouse, trying to do a dance number. It goes up to another level. When we get the finale, which is that Ratigan has forced the toy maker to create a robot replacement for the queen. This really like janky little like android thing who is supposed to seamlessly replace the queen, put Ratigan into power, and it all goes nuts from there. You, the robot goes wrong, Ratigan, as we said, ends up bursting out of his clothes, and there's this big ferocious fight on Big Ben. This feels like, as much as you said, Sam, it's a smaller film, they didn't get much time or money to work on it, it still goes big with this ending, and I really appreciated that. It's massive. It's
1: the best Disney action sequence we've had. It's got to be. Ooh, big claim. I really think it is. I'm trying to see what, like, the climax of Sleeping Beauty is really good. There was some fun stuff in The Rescuers. I love this. The stakes feel really high. The action is like really well choreographed, and you know, we'll get to the insides of Big Ben, but I'm a huge fan of what the pull off here.
2: Yeah, it's terrific. I mean, it's interesting because young Sherlock Holmes, which is another very dark and sometimes disturbing 80s Sherlock Holmes kind of spin offy thing, also has like a flying machine and takes to the skies at a point much more high altitude than the original Conan Doyle books were. Um, But yeah, this is an amazing set piece, and I mean, the film just moves like lightning, and then you just are suddenly thrown into this incredible... Uh, incredible action scene i absolutely love it it works like gangbusters
0: it just feels like the whole film in in microcosm as well we get the best of ratigan i love when he's um listing all the things that he hates the elderly the infirm children calling them all sponges at the same time the queen robot thing is like falling apart by the end it's just eyes and teeth it looks horrifying it just feels like everything gets amped up in this final reel
1: I think that robot might be an abomination. I really did (laughs) not like that robot. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it doesn't even serve tea. And my mum guessed when she saw the balloons, because we get airborne in this finale to get them up to Big Ben. My mum was the one who said, they're going to use those balloons to fly off, which is what happens. There's a, a bit of a, almost like a bit of James Bond in there, as well as Sherlock, I think, in this final reel, in terms of the big action stuff, in terms of flying over London. And yeah, Basil and Rattigan crash into the clock face of Big Ben, and we get some of the most interesting animation we have seen in any Disney film so far, because I think, Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, well, there was the floating orb from Black Cauldron last week, but this feels like the first proper bit of outright 3D animation in a Disney film, when the gears of Big Ben are kind of swirling around, going to crush the characters... This film gets a new dimension in the last couple of minutes, and it feels like a bit of a watershed moment, I would say.
1: Yeah, it was the first computer-animated environment in a Disney movie where had a couple of little objects in the Black Cauldron, including sometimes the cauldron itself, and like you said, Ilon Wee's Nonsense Orb. (laughs) Name of my next band. (laughs) (laughs) This is a whole new world isn't it and they know it is because big ben the inside the mechanics the gears are revealed to us after basil has crashed through the clock face and he's unconscious and he wakes up and he stands up and we'll get this shot that pulls back from him and pans all around the inside of the clock tower and we are as shocked as he is with the situation in which he's found himself it's Absolutely seamless, I think. It blends in so well. I don't think it's dated at all. It's very noticeably 3D, it's very noticeably computer animated, but not in a way that jars with the cell animated figures, and that's because the actual imagery wasn't produced in a computer that we see. It was modelled in a computer, and then a kind of computer-controlled pen drew it onto paper and then the animators copied that onto cells and colored it in the traditional way so that's why it blends so seamlessly with the characters in a way that some of the other computer animated environments that we might see in movies like aladdin for example don't
0: so it's sort of 3d but also analog at the same time that's a, an interesting yeah. combination like digital and analog techniques working together
1: so they've got the computer to handle the complexities but then they can still come in as they normally would with the characters to make sure that those things are interacting correctly.
2: That's incredible. Given the time pressure they were under as well, it's just an amazing scene. I mean, how do you guys think it compares to other films with things dangling off of clock towers? There's obviously Safety Last, the Harold Lloyd film, but then a a couple of years earlier than this, uh, Jackie Chan's Project A, which is another great dangly clock climax.
0: I mean, for me, when I think of dangly clock climaxes, it has to be Back to the Future. And obviously we're Mm. in the mid-80s. Uh, so having this like big clock tower set piece felt like again a bit of that it's a bit of back to the future it's a bit of sherlock it's a bit of james bond all in one but i I think it's really exciting as you say this whole set piece like moves so quickly there's a real sense of pace and excitement to it which still comes through like three decades on
1: well it was actually directly inspired by another slightly more obscure clock based action sequence originally they were just going to be fighting on the hands of the clock but then a layout artist called Mike Peraza saw the first ever Hayao Miyazaki-directed feature film, The Castle of Cagliostro, which climaxes with a fight inside a clock on top of some gears as well. And he said, oh, we have to do this. We'll have to do what he's done and, and bring it in there and try and model that environment. And they actually went to London They managed to argue the way into Big Ben because that's not something I believe people are normally allowed to do, just wander around the gears of Big (laughs) Ben. And they got down and took little mouse-eye footage of the gears with these large kind of 1980s film cameras really getting stuck in there. It's an amusing image to think of. And apparently they modeled an actual one-for-one copy of the insides of Big Ben in the computer for this, which is... So immensely impressive. And it is it's the same shock to the system that you would have gotten in the nineteen thirties when you saw Disney using the multiplane camera to create depth for the first time. And there's a lot of similarities in the kind of techniques they use here to bring us through the workings of Big Ben to what we see in the old mill, which was the first short that used the multiplane camera. And that was again a short that include various shots deliberately designed to show off the mechanisms of this mill and how impressive their new mastery of depth was. So this is very much the second generation of that.
0: Okay, so if what you're saying is that is a realistic depiction of the inner workings of Big Ben, I think we need to wrap this podcast up. Guys, we're pulling a heist. The Big Ben heist. (laughs) With normal-sized Ben. Yeah. Doing the Big Ben heist. Regular-sized Ben, and possibly Mouse Ben, who is also recording a podcast right now, are going to team up with you guys and your mice doppelgangers and we're going to pull off the Big Ben job. Let's go! It's on. It's on. Okay, then that brings us to the part of the show we call Discarded, the section where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and investigate all the weird, creepy stuff they left out. Sam, was there anything kind of sinister going on in the Basil novels? Or I think you mentioned there wasn't much in the way cut here, in the way that you maybe got that in The Black Cauldron.
1: Well, in fact, this story, the actual plot of this film, doesn't bear much resemblance to any of the actual Basil series of novels apart from the presence of characters like Basil, Dawson and Rattigan. But I don't think there's anything particularly creepy in those books either, they look very wholesome. I was very charmed by the cover art for some of those original Basil of Baker Street novels, with these little mice with little mustaches and little suits, it's great. (laughs) So there was a whole series about these, Uh, the original Basil of Baker Street novel was about tracking down two missing twins, so it's still kind of a kidnapping narrative, but that's about where the similarities end. Sequels included Basil in the Wild West, basil and the cave of cats and basil in mexico where he has to solve the case of the counterfeit cheese and track down the missing mouse elisa
0: <laughs> <laughs> basil and the cave of cats that is the one that caught my ears as well i want to know what that is what's what's a cave of cats so the the series
1: was resurrected in 2018 with basil and the great cheese cook <laughs> <laughs> So the stakes are a bit lower here, I think, than, than the Mouselisa in The Cave of Cats.
2: I like that the MacGuffins are always cheese.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which we don't get much of in this. They're basically committing very high-stakes human crimes in this movie. It's not just cheese heists or whatever. Mm. And then the most recent Basil novel in 2020 was Basil and the Library Ghosts. So I'm not sure if that puts it in the same
0: universe as Ghostbusters, but it's possible. Wow, traumatizing kids everywhere. Mm. There are jump scares in this movie. That is like the biggest jump scare in Ghostbusters. There was a Mm. lot of potential here. You also said, uh, what, Basil in Mexico? We could have brought the three (laughs) caballeros back. That could have been a thing. Yeah, Very true. It feels like a movie that
1: was set up for sequels right but we didn't really get any you could have done a lot more with
2: the basil character i wonder if they crossed the atlantic on a normal but human boat or whether they had like a (laughs) tiny little transatlantic i mean there are so many questions with this universe a tiny mouse plane
0: (laughs) oh well as we saw in the rescuers orville who was that what was the name of the bird orville the albatross could have flown on an albatross i Mm. i still think this is in the rescuers universe that still makes sense to me as a thing Okay, so the books are pretty wholesome then. Was there anything else cut out of this? You mentioned bits of cut lyrics before, uh, thankfully, a a shot-down Michael Jackson idea. Anything else that didn't make the cut of the film itself? That's pretty much it, as far
1: as I can tell. I think they've learnt the lessons from The Black Cauldron in terms of including realistic bloody violence and... Melton
0: dudes and whatever that (laughs) cut out of that film fair enough well you you were just saying that it feels like this film is kind of set up to be a franchise to have sequels and things and as we all know we did not get those so uh, let's get onto the review section and find out how this film fared if that was the reason why uh first we're going to start with the critics though what did reviewers make of this movie did it make a bit of a dent at the time did it get good write-ups Or was this still another bit of a downturn for Disney?
1: No, it did get good write-ups. It was a big turnaround from the Black Cauldron. Although, actually, a lot lot of people, a lot of critics give that fairly good reviews as well, but there were some stinkers too. This was fairly unanimously praised from what I could see. Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up. Gene Siskel said that it was Disney's first truly memorable film since 101 Dalmatians, which is quite harsh words for everything else that we've seen, but I think this is strong. Uh, Like he says, like all the classic Disney cartoon features, it travels a wide emotional range, taking us from cuddly to scary and from recognition to wonder. And Roger Ebert picks up on the computer animated aspects and says, For a long time I was down on the full-length animated efforts of Disney, but now, maybe thanks to computers, animated movies are beginning to sparkle again.
0: So he already sees it as a technical innovation that's going to create all these new creative outlets and, and maybe bring something fresh to animated movies. It's interesting that he could already see that application being something to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, and similarly prescient, we had Joanna Steinmetz of the Chicago Tribune who said that this was the start of a renaissance for Disney, or it looked like it was could be the start of a renaissance for Disney, which in a roundabout way it kind of was because we actually have a lot of the players in place here who would go on to make the little mermaid and kick off the disney renaissance we've got musker and clements directing we've got glenn Keane at the peak of his powers as a character animator we've got people like roy disney and jeffrey katzenberg running the studio every element that made the little mermaid great is here apart from one which is the songwriters who we will be encountering
0: very soon as well. Ooh, That's an interesting tease, presumably for next time, being cryptic, Sam. I can see you're making faces. Uh, okay, so it did fairly well with the critics, but what about at the box office then? D- did this not do great? Because there's got to be a reason we didn't get more Basil movies. Surely, did this one flop?
2: Why did we not get the Cave of Cats?
0: <laughs> we demand <laughs> the Cave of Cats! No, it didn't flop. It did well again.
1: On its 10 million budget, it grossed 25 million domestically, 50 million total worldwide. Healthy. That's really good. In fact, it just outgrossed The Rescuers, becoming Disney's biggest earner unadjusted for inflation, which means that it was also the biggest animated movie of all time for about a month (laughs) because it was immediately, absolutely decimated at the box office by Don Bluth's second feature, An American Tale. So Don Bluth, the Disney Judas who left during the production of Fox and the Hound and took many of the animators with him, faltered a little bit, at least commercially, with The Secret of Name, even though that's an excellent film, but now he's teamed up with Steven Spielberg. So this is a Bluth-Spielberg collab. That's a pretty difficult combination to beat in the 1980s. So that made 47 million domestically, it nearly beat Basil's worldwide total just in North America and it made 84 million worldwide, so it absolutely obliterated the record for the highest gross animated film. And that's now twice in a row that Disney have been beaten at the box office by another animated film in the same year, because the Black Cauldron had its house kicked by the Care Bears.
0: <laughs> yeah, would you say this is the first time that Disney's had really like solid competition within the medium? artistically and
1: commercially no one's been able to step to them certainly not consistently for a sustained period of time like Don Bluth has with American Tail and like he would continue to do with his next couple of features and I think that's part of What, again, ignited the Disney renaissance, ignited this push, this increase in the ambition of the animators and the studio that we're about to see.
0: Wow, so yeah, Don Bluth was like, hey, you want Mice Adventures? I'll give you Mice Adventures. And he stole all the thunder. Okay, well that's interesting. So it was a big hit and then also immediately overshadowed at the same time. That's an interesting combo.
1: But it was big enough to change Eisner and Katzenberg's minds and have them fully commit to animation so Katzenberg said you know for this company animation has a value that is beyond the specific profits that you measure for a film itself which sounds very wholesome it sounds like he's saying oh you know Walt started with animation that's what this company's built on why don't you keep doing that but then he says we create new characters, these characters will come to life in our theme parks and in our merchandising and have a longevity and value that other aspects of this corporation that are totally unique. So it's... That's
0: the most corporate sentence I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can
1: create precious, precious IP with these animated <laughs> movies that we can
2: milk for decades. Fidget plushies. <laughs> Where's the merch? Where
0: is the merch for this film? I mean, I would buy all of it. The first thing I did after we recorded our Black Cauldron episode the other day was go on the official Disney shop and search Gurgi and there was no Gurgi merch. I was going to freak Sam out with a uh, a little bit of a Gurgi plush or something. But yeah, doesn't
1: exist. I found a fidget. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this might actually be like made by a fan to be fair. because <laughs> um, it's just the one the one picture <laughs> of a fidget plush that I think someone might have made very impressively uh in their spare time. Uh, we do have a Ratigan Shaped beanbag, that looks. That's official <laughs> that's merch because that's merch. got a tag on it. Nice. Yeah,
2: Ratigan beanbag. I yeah. love it. Ben, I did a little Google as well, and I did find a sort of framed cell of the octopus, like a sort of oh. you know half animated thing. But unfortunately, it's been it's been purchased. I can't find it. out how much for, oh. but presumably a small fortune.
0: We've been outbid, possibly by Ratigan himself. Uh, okay, then. So, what about our thoughts then? Let's start with Nick. You're the guest here. Uh What star rating would you give this? How did basil play for you this time when you revisited it how did you feel about it as a film
2: oh i really enjoyed revisiting it i think every it kind of affirmed everything i thought i thought it was going to be written i remembered it being super fun and it was i remember it being quite freaky and weird and edgy and it kind of was i had a great time with it ratigan is as brilliant as i remember um i thought basil you know if it has a flaw it's that basil is you know he's overshadowed I think, in quite a major way. I don't think he really, um, and Sam was making good points about how even in the source material, Sherlock is never the main character. You don't spend a lot of time with him on his own. But I think he didn't get those moments of dazzling sleuth work, detective work, um, and there was a surprising dearth of Basil, which I would have loved to have seen in more Basil films, which it's a real shame we didn't get. One thing I will just mention, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but I-, I googled Basil's sequel to see if it might have got a direct-to-video sequel that I missed. And some people have invented what appears to be a fake sequel. Have you guys seen this? I often find there
1: are people on like various wikias and fan sites on the internet who spend a lot of time coming up with fake yeah. sequels for Disney movies. <laughs> and that, again... Perfectly valuable way to spend your time. Well,
2: yeah, some real Rattigan heads have created the 2019 non film uh, Rise to Return, in which Rattigan's German cousin Rat Haug uh, is. <laughs> is <laughs> it's, it's causing uh, Basil problems, and the voice cast is dazzling. It's got John Cleese as Basil. What? Which? Uh, oh, but not real life. No, this, none of this okay. is real. But okay. in this guy's mind, in this guy's mind, he's got John Cleese as Basil. He's got Eric Idle and Michael Palin doing voices also. He's got Billy Zane for some reason, who who did a cameo in Holmes and Watson, in the in a weird, not very funny Titanic spoof. And it's got Jeremy Irons. And Bill the Lizard is now a good guy in this film. So oh, that's and, good. I'm glad to see that if this was a kickstarter i would i would definitely chip in at least a fiver
0: <laughs> yeah you'd have a fiver from nick i'd put in i don't know three quid not quite a fiver but i'd, I'd contribute what about you sam what are you checking in for the what was it rise to return that's a terrible title <laughs> yeah they'd have to change the title to get any money from me
1: i think john cleese was originally considered for basil actually i think i've read that um obviously would have been
0: his second most prominent basil but a good second. So, did you say four stars from you, Nick? Four stars from me. What about you, Sam? Where are you going? I'm on
1: three and a half. I really enjoyed it. I think that's only by comparison to the other movies that I've given four stars on this podcast. But, oh man, great fun. A lot better than I remembered it being. It's been a few years since I've rewatched it and I had an excellent time with it.
0: Yeah, I think I'm very slightly lower. I'm going to go for a three. I had a good time with this film. It hasn't stuck with me. Uh, often I watch these films just before we record. I watched this one about two weeks ago and Ratigan lives in my head, rent-free, as does Fidget. But Basil himself, as you say, Nick, he doesn't really stick in your head as much as i think you want him to the songs were fun there were some great japes in it lots of like funny weird moments but the film overall hasn't stayed with me but i had a good time while i was watching it i think i wanted a little bit more detectiving he's the great mouse detective and he doesn't really do much detective work but other than that it was a fun film it felt like very typical of this part of the dark age where it's like interesting and strange but not top-tier Disney for me.
1: Well, that actually brings me on to my next question, which is, who do you guys think is the greatest mouse detective? Basil, Bernard and Bianca, Roquefort from the Aristocats, who also dresses like Sherlock Holmes at one point to try and find the kittens, and Mickey Mouse in one of several shorts where he is a detective and wears
0: a little hat. Straight up, Rockfort. I'm still calling him that. I'm not doing the American pronunciation. He was great. And he actually did some detectiving. He found out where the cats were. So, top marks for me.
1: Nick, as a mouse detective connoisseur, do you prefer the rescuers
2: to Basil? Crikey, crikey! This is a tough one. Uh, I, I would need to go back and revisit. I'm not as up on the the sleuth mice as you guys are, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to stick with Basil. I think I owe him an apology as well. I did Google it, and there is salt water in the Thames. So I'm gonna <laughs> for, for, for that alone,
0: I am I am gonna stick with Basil. Okay, so that brings us to the final part of the show, Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So Sam, what is the Lasting Legacy of Basil the Great Mouse Detective? Can you find him in the parks? Does he have a ride somewhere? Uh, Is there anything else spinning off from the fact that we all have mice doppelgangers living among us under our feet?
1: He doesn't have a permanent place in the parks. He did, like, after the release of this movie, there was a, some fairly shonky Basil and Ratigan costumed characters. Apparently, the studio didn't want to spend much, like, to risk too much on marketing this movie, so Roy Disney had to fund these costumes out of his own pocket. And they're not the best Disneyland costumes you've ever seen. But we do get a couple of continuations of the Basil story, and I think you guys might be interested in this one. There was a one-off comic which seemed like it was meant to be part of a series but i think they only ever made one in disney adventures magazine and that starred olivia and toby the dog who by the way were literally did not (laughs) mention once (laughs) just mentioned toby the big lovely bloodhound who is a character from the Sherlock holmes conan doyle stories as well he's in this movie and he's also in this comic where he and olivia solve their own mysteries along with a reformed And very much alive fidget the bat justice for fidget so how fidget survived or changed his ways is not addressed bearing in mind he was last seen trying to throw Olivia off a blimp the same (laughs) quite comfortable in one another's company now and this one story that was published is called the sideshow sea beast and I'll be honest I think Guillermo del Toro's a big fan of this, because it involves both an old-timey carnival and a creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> so, I think he's been cribbing ideas from that for at least his last two movies.
2: Yeah, I want it. I, I want to see Fidget's new to-do list, which is just full of him being nice to people.
0: Yeah, maybe that's the thing. If you just give him nice things to do, then he'll do it, and he'll do it well, even if he forgets the list.
1: We'll get a bit of backstory from here. Apparently, he used to work in a carnival which I think makes a lot of sense. You could do that movie Nightmare Alley with Fidget. (laughs) A
2: carnival with Fidget is the true Nightmare Alley.
1: (laughs) So it said Black Cauldron was the first Disney movie to have a video game tied into its original release. Basil the Great Mouse Detective also had a game for the Atari and the Commodore 64. Uh, I did not attempt to play the Black Cauldron game. I did attempt to play this absolutely unplayable just does not function as a video game in any way whatsoever maybe the emulator i was playing it on was pretty dodgy i couldn't get past like the third screen of this game was it
0: like a platformer or was it a point and click adventure sort of thing
1: this was a platformer even though maybe it would have worked better as a point and click but you are basil running around trying to find clues the work the mystery into it because you've got to find items which are clues in order that they progress to the next level you've got to find all the clues but it does not handle very well (laughs) let's put it like that basil is not particularly mobile and he doesn't have any self-defense mechanisms either he's just constantly getting pilloried by these evil rats and there's no real way to defend yourself again i quite like difficult games i did not like basil the great mouse detective for the commodore 64
0: well we applaud you for trying anyway Anything else for Lasting Legacy then? There is a statue of Basil in Darkwing Duck's house in the Darkwing Duck <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> Niche. That's a deep uh, cut. Yeah.
1: Maybe that exists in the same universe as the Great Mouse Detective as well. Not entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting because that's another. Uh, Darkwing Duck is another Disney version of a famous detective with an animal
0: in the role because it's basically Batman.
1: So there's the connection.
0: There we go. The definitive battle for Disney's greatest detective begins now. And that is it for this week's class. Nick, have you enjoyed joining us in the hallowed halls of Disney-versity? Have you had a good time? I've had an absolutely lovely time. Talking for uh, this amount of time about cartoon (laughs) rodents is basically
2: a dream Sunday, so I've had a great time. Thank you guys for having me. And I, I hope that this and other things will get people watching Basil the Great Mouse Detective, and we may even get that sequel, because I feel like everyone who knows this film kind of has a soft spot for it, and it's just not appreciated enough.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a cult hit, isn't it? I think at this point in time we're more likely to get a very creepy, photorealistic remake than we are a sequel.
2: <laughs> mm, my god, that would be troubling. Fidget in a live-action style. <laughs> photo reel mouse stripper
0: um i don't know if the world's ready for it oh well thank you so much for joining us it's been a blast and uh, nick where can people find you on the interwebs where can they buy a copy of world and crazy guys is there anything else you can shout i mean obviously Buy Empire every month, people. What are you doing?
2: Do please buy Empire. Buy and subscribe. Do both of those things. Yes, I'm on Twitter, at Nick and I'm on Instagram, uh, but I only really post pictures of trees and boring things, so I haven't really <laughs> figured out what to put on there. Um, and Wild and Crazy, guys, you can buy pretty much anywhere. You can buy books, um, you know, the usual online places and, some, and shops. And I'm just finishing off my second book, The Last Action Heroes, which is about 80s action muscle people and their movies. So that's out next year.
0: Amazing. And and Basil is in that one, yeah? Basil, the ultimate 80s action-adventure character?
2: <laughs> um, I'll have to add him in now. Yeah, you will. <laughs> so, it's Schwarzenegger, Stallone, and Basil. <laughs> the big
0: three. It was great to see Basil in Expendables 3, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Join us again for our next seminar as we reach the final film in the Dark Age. Already? God, Sam, it's gone so fast. We've flown through this era. Uh, We'll be heading across the Atlantic to New York City for a different take on Dickens in Oliver and Company. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Disneyversity. Sam's posting his episode notes. Follow us on Twitter again at Disneyversity. Super simple. Uh, Sam, throw out your Twitter at.
1: Okay, I'm Sam Summer Zero on Twitter. I tweet about animation sometimes.
0: <laughs> a lot of the time. That's basically most lo- of the tweets. It's
1: all that I tweet about, but
0: I don't tweet very often. Yeah. So it's. But when you do, it's top quality stuff. It's high value. It's great content. And yeah. you can follow me at Ben S. Travis. Uh, if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll arrange for a robot replacement to turn up at your place of work for a week, giving you a much needed holiday. Disclaimer, Disneyversity will not be responsible for any robot replacements who try to take over your entire life or overthrow the monarchy. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nick. I got the tools. I got the podcast. (laughs) Bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm just hearing that our mice doppelgangers have just wrapped up their podcast. So guys, we need to go. This is it. We're done. The mice are after us. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.